Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, January 25th, 2010. We continue to roll here with our steamroller of truth. <laughs> Maybe that, that just, I don't know if that sounds right. Yeah, no, I don't think I'll be using that one in the future. Just trying to test out different, never mind. Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is just no shortage of crazy things being said about God that have their origin in basically the fantasies of humanity, but not grounded in the Bible, uh, which, by the way, is God's word, and it can be trusted. Your fantasies, your opinions, how you think about God, well, that, necess- that can't necessarily be trusted. If you know, Truth be told, if I had a dollar for every time somebody said to me, well, the God I believe in doesn't uh, do X, Y, and Z, well, my simple answer to, you, to somebody who says something like that is, well, the God you believe in then doesn't actually exist. The God you believe in is really a God that you've made up. I mean, just because you have an opinion about God doesn't mean you have the right to have that opinion be right. So we have to test opinions. We have to test propositions that are being put out there into the public about God and test them according to God's word. God's word is true. How do we know this? Jesus Christ. He's the one who spoke of God's word in such a way that it was truly the word of God, that heaven and earth would pass away. But not one iota, one little piece of God's word would pass away. And so we can trust God's word because Jesus Christ, well, he rose from the dead on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, giving us his uh, undeniable credentials there that he had the authority to speak on such things, uh, basically proving his claim that he was God in human flesh, come to earth to die on the cross for our sins. And uh, his opinion about scripture, well, that's the one that we need to have. If you have an opinion of Scripture other than the one Christ has, your opinion of Scripture is just dead wrong. And I don't care if you have a heart for the lost or not. It's just dead wrong. And you need to repent and adopt Jesus' 
opinion of the scriptures. Anyway, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, <clears throat> we're going to kind of build off of the stuff that we uh, went through last week. And uh, what I'm going to do uh, in the opening segment here is I'm going to spend a little bit of time debriefing on Doug Paget's interview here at Fighting for the Faith. And Doug Paget, uh, if you remember last week, uh, I think it was last Thursday, he came on the program not to spar, not to debate, not to even lay out his theology, but to do one thing and one thing only. That is to tell us the real story about how the emergent church got its start. It's a fascinating story, and uh, the ramifications of which are huge and ginormous. And uh, is ginormous still is is that term still in vogue? Yeah, I might be dating myself by using that one. Anyway, um, and so I'm going to uh, we're going to debrief a little bit on Doug Paget's uh, interview here at Fighting for the Faith, and then I'm going to read to you something I just recently wrote for the Extreme Theology uh, website, and it, the name of it is "The Real Reason Rick Warren is Promoting Roman Catholic Monastic Mysticism." Uh, you know, here, Pete Scazzaro, We just recently uh, reviewed some of his stuff here at Fighting for the Faith. This is a guy who is promoting. Uh, Roman Catholic monastic mysticism and practices that were developed by people who were the arch enemies of the Protestant Reformation. And uh, these these Roman Catholic uh, mystic practices are not compatible with biblical Christianity. Yet Pete Scazzaro is one of the featured speakers at Rick Warren's Radicalis Conference coming up in just a couple of weeks. And uh, which, when somebody shows up like that and is out there promoting stuff that just doesn't even remotely seem like it fits in Protestantism, the question that everyone is asking is, why? Why would Rick Warren do that? Doesn't he care about the truth? Well, uh, actually, there is a real reason why Rick Warren is doing that. And so I know, I happen to know what the reason is, and I'm going to share it with you today. And uh, and then we're going. I'm going to read part of a satirical piece, and I have to warn you all ahead of time. This is a little bit rough. Uh, basically, um, the 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 satirical piece that I'm going to be reading from is uh, going to make the claim that temple prostitution can save the church. And uh, and the reason why I'm going to be reading this is because it really lays bare the complete lunacy of uh, the liberal, emergent, postmodern uh, hermeneutic as it, as it pertains to uh, the issue of homosexuality. And then for our sermon review today, we're going to be reviewing a sermon by Scott Hodge of The Orchard in Aurora, Illinois. And Scott hasn't fared so well here when we've reviewed his sermons here at Fighting for the Faith. And uh, today's sermon uh, that we'll be reviewing is, in, is from the sermon series entitled Yesterday, and you're going to hear him promoting the Roman Catholic practice, mystical practice known as Lectio Divina. Now, this is going to be our second sermon that we've reviewed here at Fighting for the Faith in the past couple of months, uh, where a pastor from a so-called Protestant uh, purpose-driven, seeker-driven church has uh, promoted the Lectio Divina. This is a growing trend and all the rage. And uh, we'll be talking about this as necessary here at Fighting for the Faith. You don't want to miss this one. Um, there's there's something very specific I want you to hear in this um, uh, sermon review, and that has to do with the fact that uh, this, this supposed mystical practice doesn't even matter if you're a Christian. Don't believe me? You need to hear 
this sermon review. So, I mean, that's going to be what we're going to cover on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. So make yourself comfortable. We've got a lot of ground to cover, and I guarantee it'll be informative, and we'll try to have a little bit of fun along the way. And so with that, we're going to dive into the program proper, and we're going to, I'm basically going to, at this point, um, read to you a piece that I, uh, that, that I wrote at the extremetheology.com website, and which, by the way, is, uh, is one of the websites where I do theological writing for. And uh, the name of the piece is called The Fatally Incorrect Assumption of the Emergent Church. One thing became perfectly clear in listening to Doug Paget tell the story of the emergence is that um, they had a fatally incorrect assumption. Okay, So let me read this piece, and obviously it was written the day after, so this is last Friday. It says, yesterday I interviewed Doug Paget on my radio program, and he told us the real story regarding the birth of the emergent church. Now, during the program, I hinted at the fact that in the interview, Doug revealed the incorrect assumption of many of the in the emergent movement, and that this incorrect assumption explains why we're seeing the theological distortions and the false gospel that have become the hallmark of the emergent church. I want to highlight this incorrect assumption for you. Therefore, I've created a short soundbite montage that may sound a bit obnoxious because of the repetition of certain phrases in it. But I'm using repetition in this montage to really drive home and highlight the incorrect assumption that these innovative leaders have been working from. By the way, it's not just Doug Paget and the emergence that are working from this incorrect assumption. Included in the mix would be Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, Bob Buford, and probably the vast majority of the people who've dro- who've bought into the purpose-driven, seeker-driven model for doing church. But here's uh, here's Doug Paget. Listen carefully. I'll the fra- phrases, the important phrases will be repeated. Here we go. Practitioners started to say, and that's going to make a difference in what kind of spirituality connects with these people because. Their culture is different, so therefore their their expectations of what church will look like and the language that they use around uh, religion and so on will be different. What kind of spirituality connects with these people? What kind of spirituality connects with these people? Their culture is different, so therefore their their expectations of what church will look like and the language that they use around uh, religion and so on will be different. Their culture is different, so therefore their their expectations of what church will look like and the language that they use around uh, religion and so on will be different. And then we tried to find the word that goes with it, and emergent.com was taken, and uh-huh. um, none of us liked to, to have church related to it because we didn't think this was just a project of churches. We thought it was a bigger product uh-huh. project of what's the meaning of the gospel inside of postmodern culture. So of what's the meaning of the gospel inside of postmodern culture? Of what's the meaning of the gospel inside of postmodern culture? And what, what's the meaning of the gospel and how do churches function in the inventive age? And what, what's the meaning of the gospel and how do churches function in the inventive age? But how postmodern of me, right? And how postmodern of all of us to be like, <laughs> well, play Doug, with the names and play with the words and try to move the meaning and play with the names and play with the words and try to move the meaning and play with the names and play with the words and try to move the meaning. And All right, so that was the little montage here. Let me kind of pick this apart here. I specifically want you to hear... I want to re- react to this one thing right at the beginning of the soundbite. Here we go. Practitioners 
started to say, and that's going to make a difference in what kind of spirituality connects with these people. Okay, did you hear that? Back at the beginning of the emergent church, practitioners were talking about how the whole postmodern change in culture was going to affect what spirituality was going to connect with these people. What people? Pagan postmoderns. Okay, listen again to this. Practitioners started to say, and that's going to make a difference in what kind of spirituality connects with these people because their culture is different, so therefore their their expectations of what church will look like and the language that they use around uh, religion and so on will be different. Okay, so the pagans will the the, the change in the post to the postmodern culture is going to change the expectations that pagans have about the spirituality that will connect to them and the messages that will connect to them. What's the big aha moment? What's the big fatal assumption of the emergent church? That they can change the message to fit the culture and its expectations. Okay. Now, compare this assumption to the cha- uh, about changing the, a- the actual meaning of the gospel to make it appeal to, most pod- uh, to postmodern culture to what Jesus instructed his apostles to do in Luke chapter 24, verses 46 through 48. And Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. Jesus himself wanted a very specific message to be proclaimed to all nations. That would include 21st century postmodern America. That would include 21st century postmodern Europe. That included uh, 20th century modern Europe and America. It doesn't matter. Jesus said to be proclaimed to all nations. All nations. And that message was repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name. These guys, via Leadership Network and everybody who's connected with them, worked from the assumption that you can move the message, change the message, and market the church to people by meeting their expectations. Who's there? These would be pagan non-believers. We did a sociological study and found out there's a change in the culture. Postmodernism expects the church to do X, Y, and Z. Therefore, if we want the church to grow, we have to do X, Y, and Z to meet the felt needs and expectations of pagans. And that means changing the message. They changed the gospel message. Yet scripture could not be clear. The gospel message cannot be changed or altered. The consequences of changing the gospel message is that a distorted gospel will instead be proclaimed in its place that is no gospel at all, and that that distorted gospel will ultimately eternally condemn those proclaiming it and believing it. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. If you don't believe me that 
the emergence have completely changed the gospel. Listen to this again from my appearance on Doug Paget's radio program a week ago on Sunday. I proclaimed the biblical gospel of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Did I hear an amen from Doug Paget? No, not at all. Listen again to my appearance on Doug Paget's radio program regarding the biblical gospel. And so our God speaks us into existence. He speaks the, the heavens and the earth into existence. And everything that he creates is good. And yet we find that there is real evil, that there is a real enemy. And uh, he, really choo- he really is all about steal- stealing, killing, and destroying and enslaving. And uh, he enslaves humanity by deceiving our first parents to disobey the one command that God had laid down for them. And as a result of it, we find in the biblical narrative that we are all enslaved to sin, death, and the devil. But God is not going to sit, stand by and just let us all be taken in slavery by, by the great enemy of his. And so he steps into humanity as Jesus Christ, God incarnate, and he wins this decisive victory against Satan by dying on the cross for all of our sins. And while Jesus was here on earth, he spoke about our great enemy and also talked about the fact that that, that the good news that, that, that he had wanted us to proclaim repentance of mm-hmm. our sins and forgiveness in his name because of what he's done for us on the cross, that the great enemy would not sleep, but that he would also send out false prophets and false teachers mm-hmm. who, would, who would then try to mess up the message. But mm-hmm. the story doesn't end there, because what, what we've learned is, is that our great God and King, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins and calls us to repentance and to receive the forgiveness of sins won by him on the cross, is also some gonna, someday going to return in glory to judge the living and the dead. Okay, now hold on. What I just laid out was a thumbnail sketch of the, the, the biblical narrative and the gospel itself. Did I hear an amen from Doug Paget? Not at all. What I said was biblically grounded using biblical language, proclaiming the biblical gospel, the one we find in the New Testament, and it coincides with Jesus' command from Luke 24 to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. Here is Doug Paget's response. Okay, so so that's Chris Roseborough. He's laying out his view of how you'd understand the Bible. I would narrate it and will on this radio show much differently than that. I think it's a better story than that. But so in that way that these so there it is. What did he do with it? He just brushed it aside. Why? Because he's changed the gospel. At the very beginning of the emergent church movement, they bought into the same assumptions that Saddleback had, that the Willow Creek Association have, and all these market-driven churches have, that you need to change the gospel, you need to change the message, and change our practices and spirituality in order to meet the felt needs of unbelievers. As a result of it, the gospel message gets changed. In many of the seeker-driven, purpose-driven churches, the gospel message is not repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. The gospel message has been changed to your changed life or the abundant life, both of which are false gospels. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the emergent church, okay, which has taken a hard turn left 
and has adopted the theology of Jürgen Moltmann and the Tübingen School of Liberal Theology. Uh, the, 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 the best way to describe their gospel is how Di, uh, Danielle Schroyer describes it in her book. She describes it as uh, God's ever-expanding concentric circles of inclusiveness. That God, that God is a boundary-breaking God who breaks through all of these different barriers and is expanding his big hug over all of humanity, and that basically this, is, this isn't even quasi-universalism. It's flat-out universalism. It's not the biblical gospel. But one thing is certain. At the outset of the emergent church, at the outset of the emergent church, they were working with a false assumption, and that is, is that you can change the message to make it more palatable, palatable to the culture. The problem is, is that postmoderns, just like moderns and pre-moderns and pre-pre-moderns and whatever time people need to hear they were living, need to hear the biblical gospel, the biblical gospel of the good news of Christ dying on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. That message has been brushed aside by the emergence. They don't think that's the biblical gospel. And as a result of it, they're preaching a false one. Why? Because they're trying to make the gospel palatable to uh, postmodern society and postmodern beliefs. The problem is, is that postmodernism is incompatible with biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity teaches that truth is objective, universally binding, and knowable. The emergent church and their postmodern tendencies say that objective ultimate truth is unknowable and believes in something called a plurality of truth. When it comes to the supernatural, the biblical biblical Christianity says that we believe in think in all things visible and invisible. And as far as the spirituality of the postmoderns, well they there's there's spirituality exists or the spirit world exists but it's non-authoritative. Um, and as a result, they're into spirituality and mysticism and mystical experiences. In biblical Christianity, the ultimate authority is Jesus Christ himself through his authoritative revealed word, also known as the Bible. In postmodernism, there is no ultimate authority. Each individual's experiences are for the individual. And, the, and basically, truth is only known in conversation and in community. And then the application and the experience of that truth is still back down to the individual le uh, level. Postmodernism is incompatible with biblical Christianity, and postmoderns need to hear, need to hear the biblical gospel and be called to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, won by him on a cross. Then they need to hear the scandal of the gospel, and it's through that scandal that God grows his church, not through innovative innovatively moving the message or thinking that you can change the message to make it more palatable to appeal to what the pagans expect from the church. Practitioners started to say, and that's going to make a difference in what kind of spirituality connects with these people because their culture is different, so therefore their, their expectations of what church will look like and the language that they use around uh, religion and so on will be different. What kind of spirituality connects with these people? What kind of spirituality connects with these people? You see? What kind of spirituality connects with these people? Christianity never sat, from the beginning, never once, and do you find anywhere in the New Testament or all of church history, until really the 20th century, people going, you know, what kind of, what, what, what do the people outside the church want? What kind of spirituality is going to connect with them and then give them what they want? 
It's not possible without losing the gospel. Now that you know that from the beginning, the emergent church was working with a fatally incorrect assumption, listen to this montage that highlights the fact that the primary thing that was truly at the heart of the emergent church movement was innovation, innovation, innovation. Yet the scriptures, the scriptural call for the church is fidelity, fidelity, fidelity to the one gospel message as handed down in the scriptures. You know, many folks wouldn't have heard of. You know, they would help um, innovative pastors not only learn from one another, but think about creative ways to extend the learnings that they've uh, made onto others. So they would encourage uh, peer learning uh, in a whole variety of ways. With no theological agenda, one of the beautiful things about Leadership Network was they weren't uh, interested in engaging in theological partisanship. Mm -hmm. They were interested in best practices and bringing together innovative leaders to know one another and learn from one another. Okay, so I've got to point this out here. Just listening to this. Leadership one, no theology, just innovation. So they got a whole bunch of innovative guys that were, quote, growing the church and being innovative, put them all together in a think tank with no theological checks in place, none whatsoever. And what did we get? Nothing but innovation and change. Innovation so much so that even the gospel itself got innovated into something that isn't the gospel. Yeah, this is innovation without any eye towards solid biblical truth. Yeah, so what Leadership Network is very good at was finding people who were doing things that were that were unique and were, were uh, innovative. And they knew that innovative leaders don't tend to respond well to come one, come all mm-hmm. kinds of advertising. Right. That um, innovative leaders in any, in any industry want to connect with um, other people that they think would be innovative leaders as well mm-hmm. and people who go to mass market. So the only people that these innovative leaders now we're talking to were other innovative leaders. Events um, tend not to be those people. And right. the curve of innovation, if you know that bell curve mm-hmm. and the curve of innovation theory, um, finding people on the left side of the curve, the, the inventors and the innovators and the early adapters, um, it's more difficult to, to connect with those people. So they created personal invitations uh, for uh, pastoral leaders to be involved in the network. Mm-hmm. They didn't put advertising ads in magazines. They sent invitations to the churches that they determined were the most innovative. So, because yeah. they're a privately funded foundation right. that didn't charge money for any of these events. They were choosing to invest in churches that they thought would would bear the highest return. Okay, so Leadership Network only sent out invitation to innovative churches. They weren't interested in fidelity. They were only interested in innovation. On that, on that set of relationships. Okay, so, so one of the things that was happening in the early 90s, um, late 80s into the early 90s, was people were starting to notice um, socio, sociographic um, generational distinctions. Mm-hmm. And there were things like that, um, that after the baby boom generation, um, there were not 4 million babies born in the United States between 1964 and 1990. Mm-hmm. So they were noticing that you had a smaller generation. They noticed that that smaller generation lived through particular cultural um, events, schools closing, uh, war in Vietnam, um, the malaise of the late 70s and all that stuff and the mm-hmm. latchkey and the rise of divorce and more divorced kids. So all these kind of sociographic 
um, determiners, um, people started to say, hey, those all matter. So there's a generation of people um, who are different from their parents, so this 20- or 25-year generation are going to be different. And then religious um, practitioners started to say, and that's going to make a difference in what kind of spirituality connects with these people because their culture is different, so therefore their, their expectations of what church will look like and the language that they use around uh, religion and so on will be different. That's right. They're, the pagans' expectations of the church are going to be different, so we have to innovate in order to reach them. Billy Graham folks were putting that together yeah. on how do you do evangelism and outreach in, in a burgeoning postmodern society. And they're bringing in thinkers, Stan Grens, and, and a whole bunch of others, you know, uh-huh. uh, um, people from sociologists and so on. And they're just trying to figure out, like, what's the world that we live in? And these are people who, are, who believe that, you know, the, cult, the, the culture that someone is in really does matter when you're um, talking gospel with people. Right. It, it, it matters. You have to use a language set. And you have to use the values and the tools and the aesthetics that connect with that culture. That's you have to use the the values and the tools that connect with that culture. No, you don't. You need to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. It only requires you to really basically know how to speak their language. You know, you do need to understand their culture, so that you don't commit some kind of a faux pas. That being said, the message stays the same. You are a sinner in need of a Savior. Good news. Christ died for your sins. Repent and believe the good news. Just normal human behavior. So Leadership Network is pulling together the most innovative uh, small groups pastors, the most innovative preachers, the most innovative... Not, not the most faithful. Not the ones who are defending sound doctrine. Not the ones who are, who are solid in theology and know where the rails are biblically and doctrinally and theologically because they, they set out at the beginning, they don't want to have anything to do with uh, theological infighting. They just want innovation, innovation, innovation. No faithfulness, no fidelity, just innovation. Uh, discipleship pastors and having numbers of, of conferences and meetings over here. And I was a part of a network of innovative youth ministry people. So I was in a group that was of these burgeoning youth ministry people that were really saying, hey, youth ministry really does have to change because it was really formed in the fires of the late 1950s to late 1960s. And the late 1980s and into the 1990s, there's been a significant change. And we really have to re rethink and reimagine what youth ministry ought to be in light of a cultural change. So, Rethink. Reimagine. What youth ministry ought to be? Well, youth ministry is simple. You proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to your uh, your uh, pre-adult children. Call them to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, and then you disciple them in the Scriptures, teaching them sound biblical doctrine, a Christian worldview, and the Christian faith, so that they know it and can defend it. This has this 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 is the way it's supposed to have been the entire time. Youth ministry is the same as discipleship to any other age group, grounded in scriptures, focused on Christ and Him crucified. 1996, Leadership Network, uh, um, uh, in part of their practice of, of um, pushing 
to the advancing edges of, of church practitioners and, and ministry thinkers said, "Hey, let's pull together these these folks who are who are doing work in in youth ministry and college ministry who understand the generational distinction as influenced by the postmodern condition." Got it. The postmodern postmodern conference. So they they um, sent out for the first time, rather than invitation only events mm-hmm. where they invited individuals, they said anybody in our leadership network churches, you know, the people that like our kinds of stuff and read our our communications and so on. We're going- of course, all of those people anyways were only invited to be part of leadership network because they were innovative. They were all into innovation. They were into best practices regarding change and innovation. No fidelity to scripture, no sound doctrine, just innovation. We're going to uh, have a consultation kind of meeting uh, for people working in Gen X ministries, mm-hmm. this Gen X conference. The kinds of questions that we're asking might lead to conclusions that we don't think fit in our current systems and structures any longer. Yeah, yeah. Who are the, who are the, who are the young leaders that will create the, uh, the church of the future? Who are the young leaders who will create the church of the future? I'm sorry, God's... Christ's church is not created by young leaders or old leaders. Christ's church is is created by Christ himself through the preaching of his gospel. Christ himself is the Lord and creator of the church. Young ministers are not going to create the church of the future. There is no church of the future. Haven't they ever heard of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church? And I'm using the word Catholic with a small c. Universal. We're all in this together. The communion of the saints. I mean, this this basically, by the way, one of the major assumptions of Leadership Network, and I've read their documents, I know this. They consider each different generation to be a separate church. So in other words, uh, if you're a baby boomer, you're part of one church. If you're a Gen Xer, you're part of another church. And if you're in, in, you know, in the up-and-coming current crop of uh, youth people, Kind of post postmodern or alter modern, depending on how you want to use the term. You're you are your own generation, therefore you are your own church. I think this is nothing more than a, an attempt on Satan's part at divide and conquer. Rather than seeing us all as one church together, we're supposed to only think of churches generationally or psychographically. We've got postmodern churches. We got churches that that uh, that appeal to cowboys. We got churches that appeal to. Uh, one-armed amputees who like to do the cha-cha. That's a whole different church, too. To find innovators, you don't give mass calls unless you're able to do that inside of a very... very Find what? Only innovators. Only innovators. Only innovators. See the problem here? Very tight, invita- very tight invitation... Uh, language, you know, where it's kind of code language and people figure out what it is. Um, so we, the best way to do it is to go around and meet people and invite them into personal relationships with others into the personal networks. I don't think a lot of people really get this, is that you practically handpick the entire crop of current uh, leaders, both in the seeker-driven, purpose-driven, and emergent movements all by yourself. The list of people, I mean, you've got, you've got Tony Jones, Dan Kimball, Mark Driscoll, um, and uh, you've got Rob Bell, 
uh, Craig Groeschel, uh, you know, Andy Stanley, all of the, Chris the, C, yeah. Yeah, Chris right. C, uh, yeah, and a bunch of women. Dieter Zander, they would have, at, um, did you pick Sally Morgenthaler too? Yeah, well, pick is, pick is not exactly the way I would say it. What I would say is I created a network for these people who should know one each other, should know one another to have a chance to meet and collaborate together. Okay, so that don't let that that point not hit you upside the head. The current crop of major leaders in the seeker-driven, catalyst, purpose-driven movement, with probably the exception of uh, Perry Noble and Stephen Furtick, everybody else, they were hand-selected by Doug Paget because they were innovative. And he put together a network of people who were innovative and they helped each other to continue to be innovative and talk to each other about innovating. And they had a fatal assumption, a fatally incorrect assumption in their thinking that you can change the message and that you have to make it appealing to the culture by basically altering the message. And they have. And as a result of it, they've lost the biblical gospel. And look, Leadership Network also was a very powerful force in all this. When I would call on somebody or go visit a church or, you know, go to an event, and I would say, I'm with Leadership Network, um, people tended to know what that meant. Uh-huh. Um, so it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't the Doug Paget-ness so much as it was, <laughs> uh, um, you know, the, the power of the position. You um, you had the clout of uh, Bob Buford and, and Peter Drucker and uh, the Willow Creek Association and the Saddleback Association all behind you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was like, hey, the, those are people. I know who that group is. They write some good stuff, and they're you know they do some good things. And okay, by the way, when Dan Kimball came out with his book, you know what, five six years ago now on the emerging church, there were call out boxes that uh, that basically there was pieces written by Brian McLaren and pieces written by Rick Warren, and for the life of me, I could not figure out why Rick Warren would want his name attached to the emerging church, and least of all, why he would want to have his, basically his picture next to the picture of Brian McLaren as they were both discussing, quote, the emerging church. Answer. Brian McLaren, Rick Warren, and Dan Kimball were, were all part of Leadership Network. McLaren is a product of Leadership Network. Rick Warren is a product and major leader in Leadership Network. Why did these guys? Because all of this is about adapting the church to make it palatable to different market segments. This is pure pragmatism. And, and again, these are young, innovative leaders who are trying to find the very best other group of young, innovative leaders. Because smart young innovators know that what they have to do is tie in with other people that are smarter and, and more innovative than they are. Right? You know, That's the- it's all about innovation. Innovation. Where's fidelity? Where's sound doctrine and rebuking those who are contradicting it? It's not even on the table. That's the key. So that event with Jimmy and, and others and everybody there, the agreement was let's turn the conversation from generational demographics to postmodern psychographics. Okay. So the decision was made to intentionally 
add the converse add to the conversation publicly what had been going on privately and that was um, that it's about this larger cultural shift that can be described in language that, that includes the phrase postmodernity. So in 1998, at the at the uh, Glorieta Conference Center in Albuquerque, New Mexico, got it. Uh, really, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, there was um, the National Reevaluation Forum. Notice the name of the forum, the National Reevaluation Forum. What are they reevaluating? The entire church and how we do church in light of the changing postmodern condition. How do we reach them since they expect something completely different from the church than people in the past have expected from the church? That's funny because the church is the one who expects the pagans to repent and trust the good good news and to be discipled in a new way of thinking, in a new culture, in a new kingdom known as the body of Christ, the kingdom of God. I became aware of Brian's book um, that he had he had just written in 1998 uh-huh. um, that talked about uh, reinventing your church. <clears throat> and um, uh, I read that book and invited Brian because what he was talking about was just the very stuff we were talking about, the reevaluation for him, uh-huh. to come in and to be one of the uh, one of the thought leaders, one of the presenters at the reevaluation for him. What this condition, cultural situation would produce was not larger churches per se, but new expressions of churches. Okay. So church planting became the the crown jewel in this network in the way that the mega church became the crown jewel in the baby boomer and previous generation churches. Which, by the way, church planting still is the big thing in the seeker-driven leadership network network. It's all about church planting. That's why these things are cropping up all over the place, and they've been completely rethunk, and the gospel's been rethunk too, to make it more appealing to the cultural market segment that each of these individual little churches are trying to reach. problem is they're not reaching them with the biblical gospel. And in this world, the fact that you were new and just starting and you could start a church from scratch within a people group, that was the sign of innovation. So then we, in 1999 and 2000, we structured around running regional forums, regional events, mm-hmm. um, in places where the best innovators were were uh, practicing. And then we tried to find the word that goes with it, and emergent.com was taken, and uh-huh. um, none of us liked to, to have church related to it because we didn't think this was just a project of churches. We thought it was a bigger product. Uh-huh. project of what's the meaning of the gospel inside of postmodern culture. So what's the meaning of the gospel inside of postmodern culture? What's the meaning of the gospel inside of postmodern culture? The meaning of the gospel, regardless of culture, is repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Christ died for your sins. The gospel message doesn't change. Period. Like, we still can't... Like, people are like, oh, that emergent stuff's all dead now and all this kind of nonsense, and it's like... Yeah, that's so hilarious because these are people who thought that our goal was like to create organizations. Mm-hmm. Like we're not creating organizations. Or- Their goal wasn't to create organizations. Their goal was to innovate. Their network convenes and talks to each other to continue the process of innovating. 
organized to the point that it's necessary for some function. But we never wanted to start organizations or institutions or anything. So not having them, you know, like when you said earlier, like, oh, is Emergent Village not around anymore? It's like, oh, no, the village is totally functional. Uh More than ever. Of course it is, because the goal is innovation. It's just we finally now got to the point where we don't have to have this this arbitrary kind of nonprofit thing sort of exist for a while so we could all meet underneath that banner. You know, I tell you, I think people just assume because you guys haven't updated the blog and uh, the podcast for a while that that somehow means that yeah, uh, you right. guys have gone away. Right, because people who run blogs and, and, and podcasts think that's the measure of someone's someone's significance. But, you know, there's more books being published and all this than ever. Um, there's entire radio networks. That, that now exists for, for all this stuff. There's, there's entire more podca- there's, there's entire podcast than ever. There's entire like, college uh, faculties that are buying into your guys' principles and thoughts and way of thinking. Oh, there's in- yeah, yeah. I mean, I- now I will say that the kinds of apparatus that this network used early on, big conventions or invitation-only meetings, that that was important for the one season of a network. Uh huh. But now we're in the point where there's too many people in too many places that are fully engaging in this that no one organization could capture all of it. Mm-hmm. So we've been deliberate in saying, then don't have one organization, have hundreds of them. And what's the meaning of the gospel and how do churches function in the inventive age? But how postmodern of me, right? And how postmodern of all of us to be like, <laughs> well, play with the names and play with the words and try to move the meaning and yeah, and and see, I, and I've never, I, I, I not never, I, I'm no longer as comfortable with modern postmodern. I think that what you saw at the end with the with the fall of communism was the end of the social experiment of the industrial age. Uh-huh. Right. What really brought that thing to its knees was the information age. Uh huh. Um, and the information age is really going to be brought to its knees by the inventive age. There you have it. Doug Paget, innovator, inventor, extraordinaire. Emergent village, if you really want to understand what it is, it's not about a theology. It's about innovation. It's a network of innovators who have been brought together and worked together for innovation, for the cha- for the sake of innovation, and change the gospel and think that they can change the meaning of the gospel and move things around uh, to make the church uh, more palatable. It's all about church growth. It's all about pragmatic marketing of the church and innovating in order to reach new people with new and inv- innovative ways of talking about God and things like that without any eye towards sound doctrine, biblical theology, or even the truth. That's what Emergent Village is. That's what Leadership Network is all about. That's what the Purpose Driven Network is all about. That's what the Willow Creek Association is all about. In a very real way, we are dealing with an innovation cult. We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. 
Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Think Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's Featured advertiser, Cheap O Air. Yeah, I, I know the name doesn't sound real, but let me assure you it is. Cheap O Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheap O Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world and also has a lowest airfare guarantee for the winter. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheap O Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, 
We have a promo code that is good through January 25th that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. back warning the gospel doesn't need to be changed it needs to be proclaimed and preached All right, I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you. Right now, it's still the month of January, which means that if you join the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew before January 31st, uh, then what will happen is, is that an anonymous donor will take your, your uh, crew membership dues for the month of January and triple them. Uh, thereby basically making it so that you can have a greater impact financially here in supporting Fighting for the Faith. So again, the way you do this is by visiting fightingforthefaith.com, click on Join Our Crew, and uh, when you do, there's a button there that'll show up at the last screen that'll give you access to our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio Cove, which is a growing uh, theological treasure trove of resources designed to help you go deeper in God's Word, sound doctrine, Christ-centered apologetics. So again, fightingforthefaith.com, click on Join Our Crew. Crew. Of course, if you'd like to donate above and beyond, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, moving along here. Um, next thing on the agenda here is uh, basically the answer to the question why. Now, one of the things we've talked about is this growing uh, trend where monastic mysticism, that's right, mysticism developed by Roman Catholic monks in monasteries. These are men who rejected and do not, did not believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, but were trying to work their way to heaven by depriving their body of sleep, depriving their body of food, depriving their body of uh, of warmth during the winter, of wearing hair shirts, of of whipping themselves, of practicing in mysticism. These guys, those guys are the ones who created the Lectio Divina and things like this. Those Their mysticism practices are being brought into seeker-driven and purpose-driven churches. Uh, case in point, Pete Scazzaro is going to be speaking, one of the featured speakers at Rick Warren's upcoming Radicalis Conference. We've reviewed his stuff here at Fighting for the Faith, and uh, it's just an absolute abomination. It does not, it is it is basically repackaged Roman Catholic mon monastic mysticism uh, put in pretty packaging it, it called uh, emotionally healthy spirituality. That's what the pack the new packaging is. But all it is is Roman Catholic m mysticism packaged for the seeker driven, purpose driven set. Why are they doing this? Why is Rick Warren? promoting this stuff there's a very simple reason it's because rick warren is just like doug paget 
he believes that you've got to change the message in order to market. It's all about pragmatism. And I wrote a piece over at Extreme Theology called The Answer to the, uh, to the Why Question. Here's what it says. Why are Rick Warren and the, a growing gaggle of purpose-driven and seeker-driven pastors embracing and promoting Roman Catholic monastic mysticism? Well, in a previous post, I said that I would answer this question, and now it's time to do so. There is one reason and one reason only why innovative, market-driven pastors are promoting Roman Catholic monastic mysticism. The simple answer is marketing. Since the mid-1990s, market surveys and data have been pointing market-driven pastors to the fact that the spiritual market in America was undergoing a change and would soon be embracing spirituality and expect mystical spiritual experiences from their church. Therefore, the market-driven church in a pragmatic attempt to make the church more appealing to pagans who expect to have spiritual experiences have reached back into time to find some vaguely Christian form of spirituality that they can promote in order to meet their felt needs, uh, to meet the felt needs of pagans and thereby grow their churches. This is growth for growth's sake with absolutely no concern for the truth and sound biblical doctrine. Leith Anderson, this is Doug Padgett's pastor, uh, former pastor, he said this, by the way, Leith Anderson said this when Doug Padgett was still working for him, uh, said that at, at the, <clears throat> hang on a second here, we're messing this one up, Leith Anderson said this at Leadership Network's 1995 Retooling the Church Summit, quote, we are living in a time unprecedented for its change, a time when the rules of yesterday have been replaced. Three specific shifts that are impacting the church in North America are, one, the entry point being a relationship, not a program. Two, the quest for experience before understanding and the desire for connection to God is expressed in the increased interest in spirituality and the supernatural. And three, the rise of non-denominationalism in favor of people's desire for essential biblical Christianity, regardless of the denominational label, uh, churches that reach people in the 21st century will have four characteristics. One, spiritual, spiritually focused. Two, socially, socially permeable, that is, they must open, be open rather than closed to newcomers. Three, culturally relevant. And four, outreach oriented. Barna uh, Barna's mar market research also identified this change in the spiritual market back in the mid-1990s. According to Barna, there were going to be several key issues in regard to the significance of church and culture in America. Some of these issues include, one, the rejection of absolute truth versus the ascendancy of moral relativism, two, the demise of Christian orthodoxy versus the rise of synthetic spirituality. i got to pause there for a second. Back in 1994, Barna identified that this was going to be the case and there would be a rise of what is called quote synthetic spirituality christine pack i interviewed her on friday in her piece regard asking the question why are basically reformed calvinists embracing spiritual formation and monastic mysticism it doesn't make any sense the answer to the question is well those people who are doing it are doing it for market reasons we know that now okay but what this was all part of a plan. Calvinism doesn't go with mysticism, especially monastic mysticism. But what these guys have done is they've created synthetic spiritualities. We've taken a piece of uh, Calvinism here and mixed it with uh, monastic mysticism over here and also threw in, just for good measure, a little bit of uh, abundant life stuff just to make it all work together. 
the seeker-driven, purpose-driven churches are the creators of synthetic spiritualities and synthetic theologies. These are theologies that do not exist in the wild. These are genetically altered spiritualities and theologies. Think of them as genetically altered tomatoes, if you would, or corn. These are synthetic spiritualities, and Barna back in 1994 saw this was coming, and what did these guys do? They go, well, we better change and start adopting these synthetic spiritualities. Put plainly, these market-savvy church leaders, via their connections with Leadership Network, the Purpose Driven Community, the Willow Creek Association, and the Emergent Church, through their market data, saw these changes coming in the culture, and they adapted the church, its message, and its practices in order to conform to the world's expectations. They sold the truth out in order to make the church more appealing to pagan spiritual sympathies and expectations. This is the epitome of what the Apostle Paul warned us about in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-4. through 4. The Apostle Paul warned that the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The Lectio Divina, Ignatius Loyola's prayer examine, Brother Lawrence's practice of the presence of God are all practices that claim that if you follow the steps created by these Roman Catholic monks, then you will have, quote, a spiritual experience. Yet all of these practices are monastic myths and spiritual fantasies created by men who are trying to earn their way to heaven through their asceticism, harsh treatment of the body, hair shirts, self-whippings, long prayers, and mysticism. Again, the Apostle Paul warns us about these monks and their false piety and spiritism. Said Paul, quote, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, and going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, for whom uh, the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows, and with a growth that is from God. God is the one who gives the growth in the church, by the way. Not us, not our innovation, not our mysticism, not our spirituality, not our cleverness, not anything. It's God who brings, who gives the growth, and he only gives the growth through the preaching of the gospel, plain and simple. Rather than heed the warnings of the scriptures and abiding in Christ and holding fast to his word and sound biblical doctrine, these market-driven churches in their harlot-like pursuit of growth at all costs have sold their souls to the spirit of the age, and as a result, they have forsaken the biblical gospel itself. For men do not come to God on their own terms, but can only come to God on God's terms, and God has said that no one can come to the Father except for through Jesus Christ and through the proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. It is this gospel and this gospel alone that God uses to regenerate lost sinners and grant them life and salvation. You can read that, by the way, if you want to. It's at extremetheology.com. The name of the post is the answer to the why question. I'm going to hold off. I'm going to pause right here. I'm going to hold off on the uh, the uh, the article on uh, how the EL, how basically how the church can be saved via temple prostitution. That's a that's a satirical piece. I will read it on tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith. And uh, what we're going to do instead is we're going to take our second break and then go into our 
sermon review today from Scott Hodge from The Orchard in Aurora, Illinois, who is an up-and-coming thought leader, innovative leader, and he's going to be preaching about the Lectio Divina. I'd like to keep the fo- the program focused. Now, I understand that he's saying, well, you we just took a, a break. I, yeah, I understand that, but I went long in the first segment, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and take the second break now, and then we're going to come back into our sermon review. And this is one you don't want to miss, because you're going to find out whether or not Scott Hodge and these other guys think that uh, the Lectio Divina, is this only for Christians, or is it, uh, is it for the pagans as well? You're going to hear a lot more about this, so uh, stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. Don't touch that MP3 dial or whatever, however you're listening. Um, Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my uh, friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Reaching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheap O Air. Yeah, I, I know the name doesn't sound real, but let me assure you it is. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world and also has a lowest airfare guarantee for the winter. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that is good through January 25th that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Are you tired of lousy service? When you need help with repairs around the house, Angie's List members will help you decide which service companies to trust and which ones to avoid. Kiplinger said, Angie's List is a virtual backyard fence with talk about the dry cleaner, the drywaller, and everything in between. 
With Angie's List, you get access to great local reviews on their website, live support through their call center, the award-winning Angie's List magazine, and access to their complaint resolution team, as well as discounts from highly rated service companies. If you'd like to find out more about Angie's List and their unbiased reviews of service companies and doctors in your area, then call them Toll-free at 877-225-0478. Again, that's 877-225-0478. Call Angie's List today, and you'll be done with lousy service forever. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Getting ready for our sermon review. This will be our second sermon review where a Protestant pastor is teaching Roman Catholic monastic mysticism, also known as Lectio Divina. This is serious. This is very serious and grievous. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the Orchard in Aurora, Illinois, pastored by Scott Hodge, an innovative, cutting-edge, thought leader in the seeker-driven, purpose-driven, slash emergent church. Tail end of the summer of last year, he did a sermon series entitled Yesterday. Kind of vague references to that Beatles song, Yesterday. All my troubles seem so far away. But uh, this particular sermon, you're going to hear him singing the praises of Roman Catholic monastic mysticism. By the way, um, let me see what we got here. Just so you know, in the sermon series itself, yesterday we had sermons, a sermon on the Christ within us, uh, talking about the um, ideas of George Fox. Another one was called Cultivating Humility, St. Benedict of Nursia, and Experiencing from Julian of Norwich. Norwich. Just so you know. Thought I'd throw that in there. We're going to pick out the Lectio Divina one. By the way, if you'd like to see, uh, listen to this, uh, just type in Scott Hodge, The Orchard, Aurora, Illinois, in Google, and it'll come up, and go to their sermon archives. And these were preached in uh, August and September of 2009. But for today's purposes, we'll be focusing in on the Lectio Divina. So without any further ado, here is Scott Hodge preaching and teaching Roman Catholic monastic mysticism, a.k.a. Lectio Divina. Hey, would you stand with me real quick? And I just want to start out by reading a passage of Scripture. I'll put the uh, Scripture on the screens. It's Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. Let's lift our voices and, uh, and say this together. Here we go. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do 
according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. While you remain standing, let's bow. Okay, now I'm going to point out something here. He's reading a passage from Joshua that talks about meditating on God's law day and night so that you can do all that it says to do. Now, that's going to be important because uh, that verse that he read, yes, we are to meditate on God's word. Absolutely. What he's going to be offering here, though, is not biblical meditation. He's going to be offering a Roman Catholic monastic mystic practice designed to help you, quote, experience God. This is not, the Lectio Divina is not a valid form of biblical meditation, plain and simple. Its assumptions and its presuppositions are wrong. Because you're not focusing in on and reading and understanding and and marking and, and inwardly digesting what God's word says. No, you're taking a random pieces, a piece of scripture and saying it over and over and over and over and over again, expecting God to speak to you. This is not what Joshua was teaching in that passage. Our heads, let's pray before we begin. God, we are so thankful for the scriptures, your word. God, we're thankful that the Bible is not just a book that you've given us to just inspire us or make us feel good or any of those kind of things, but you've given us your word because it transforms us. It changes us. And and I pray today, God, during our gathering, that you would open our ears so that we may hear what you want us to hear. And God, open our eyes so that we can, we can see what you want us to see. And open our hearts, God, so we may know you in a fresh way. That's our prayer, God. We ask that now together in your son's name. Amen. Amen. You're going to be seated. Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, such a, such a, I think, a great reminder to us of, of how the Holy Scriptures have the ability to bring beauty and goodness into our lives. And, of course, we, we see that promise throughout the Scriptures. I mean, you, you begin to read the Bible and you begin to see there's a lot of motivation for reading it. I mean, God over and over encourages us to, to open that Bible up, which sometimes we've got to blow the dust off of it, right? Or to open it up and get the, let the moths fly out of it, right? But, but constant motivation. I mean, I think about how the psalmist declares in Psalm 119, verse, verse 11. He says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Again, if you keep reading in verse uh, 105, that same chapter, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You see it in other places. Proverbs chapter 30 uh, tells us that the very word of God is flawless. It is, it is pure. In Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that God's word is actually alive and it is powerful, that it's, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. So far, so good, right? I mean, here he's singing the praises of Scripture. Hold on. Also tells us that it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Now, so much beauty and power in the Scriptures. 
That's like Joshua 1.8, the, the scripture we just read. You know, it tells us that when we, learn to, when we learn to actually apply the scriptures to our lives, when we allow the scriptures to guide us and lead us, uh, it benefits us in so many ways. It transforms us. And, and yet at the same time, for most of us, it's not a very easy book, is it? No, I mean, I think if we really get honest about it, uh, for many of us, the Bible is an extremely intimidating and difficult book that we struggle to understand and to approach, let alone apply to our lives. We, we struggle with it. I, I've never found the Bible to be that hard. Even before I got a degree in theology and biblical languages, I, you know... <clears throat> Got to admit, though, though when I was a Nazarene, it was all everything was read through the law. And so because of that, I think a lot of us really don't ever learn how to engage with the scriptures. And it's not, I mean, I don't think it's because we don't want to. I don't think it's because we don't think it's important. It's not because we don't, it's, you know, it's not that we, we don't love God or anything like that. I, I think it's just that it's hard to apply the scriptures when we're not even sure how to approach them. Oh, yes, he's, he's reading it through the law, too. How to apply the scriptures. Application, law, by the way. Application is always law. Now, there are valid applications from the scriptures. Third use of the law, though, is that use which tells us what a good work is. Okay? Three valid uses of the law. First is to curb our sin. This is the civic use used by the government to keep us from beating up each other and stealing each other's toys. A second use of the law is the primary use, and that's to show us our sinfulness and how wretched and completely poverty-stricken we are in the spiritual category so that we despair of our own righteousness and realize we don't have any whatsoever and again, instead throw ourselves at the mercy of Christ and beg for his mercy and forgiveness like the, um, uh, the, uh, in the story of the parable of the ter- Pharisee and the tax collector. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. When the, when the law does its work, it undoes you. Is that even a way of putting it? Anyway, it, 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 undo- it undoes you so that you have nothing left to offer God except for to ask him for mercy and forgiveness because of what you've done. That's the primary use. Third use of the law also shows us what a good work is. Okay? Um, so when you when the the law when God thunders from Mount Sinai, thou shalt not commit adultery, right? Um, the the flip side of that the 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 good work is oh a good work is being faithful to your wife or to your husband. Oh okay, I get it. Shows us what a good work is, and then if we run afoul of that. We have to run again to the cross for the forgiveness of sins. We never leave the shadow of the cross, by the way, as a Christian. The entire life of a Christian is one of repentance. And so uh, when uh, the only thing, though, you're, you're reading the scriptures to do is to find something to apply to your life. Oh, what can I apply today? Well, how, do, how can I grow? You're only reading it legalistically, and that's pietism, and that's not biblical Christianity, nor is that Christian sanctification. Just want to point that out. And how can you apply it if you can't approach it? And I think that's pretty understandable. Because if you think about it, the Bible is a pretty unique book, isn't it? I mean, think about, I mean, I I love to read. I have a huge collection of books. There is no book in my library quite like the Bible, right? I mean, for one, I mean, it's very unique. For one, it's, it's, uh, it's stinking long. It is. It's long, isn't it? I mean, think about it. Most versions of the Bible are more than a thousand pages long. 
That's a big book. Is it me or does it sound like he's starting to tear down the Bible, kind of trash talk it? Notice a change here. In fact, the Bible's not even a book. I mean, if you think about it, the Bible is actually 66 books, yet in one. And, and then if you think about this, how, how it was written over a very, very, very long period of time. In fact, over 2,000 years, roughly 2,000 years. Uh, and it wasn't just written by one person. I mean, dozens of people are responsible for the Bible. And yet what makes it, I think, most unique is the fact that followers of Jesus believe that this book, that this book comes to us as a gift from God. And of course, God's people have believed that for a long time uh, and for thousands of years, which is why the Bible is one of the only books that you see uh, bounded in leather, right? I mean, how many books do you have that's bounded in leather? Probably not many. I mean, it's why in, in uh, medieval times, Christians bound their Bibles in precious jewels and metals. It's why my mom almost threw me out of the car when I was a kid when she looked in the back and saw me chuck the Bible across the back seat. That's called Christian school rage. <laughs> I mean, look, the Bible is unique. And because it's unique and because it is so different, oftentimes we, we feel like it's pretty intimidating and challenging. And so this weekend, we're going to do something very different, very uh, unique. At first, we're going to go way back in time. And, and we're going to learn about someone who developed a very uh, ancient form of scripture meditation known as Lexio Divina. In fact, not only are we going to learn about, about Lexio Divina, but we're actually going to experience it ourselves today before we leave in this gathering. Now, there's a few things that I think it's important that we keep in mind about the scriptures. I mean, first of all, if you think about this, it's pretty, pretty uh, uh, crazy. You know, the, the Bible, I mean, first of all, the printing press, let's talk about the printing press, was not even invented until the 15th century, right? I'm kicking my water and it's driving me bananas. Okay. I mean, the printing press, okay, not, not invented until the 15th century, which means that until that time, Bibles were written, what, word for word by hand. Imagine that. Which also means that there weren't that many Bibles around, maybe like one per town. Which means, I mean, think about this, this is crazy. Three quarters, okay, three fourths of the Christians who've lived never held a Bible in their hands. Three fourths of the Christians who's lived have never held a Bible in their hands. Instead, they heard the Bible being taught, right, or being read. They, they heard the stories being told around the table. Uh, the priests or the, the, the monks would, would memorize portions of Scripture, uh, uh, the rabbis, even uh, the Torah itself, and they would, they would share the stories. And, 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 then, and then over the years, we begin to see the stories depicted in beautiful stained glass, in sculptures and paintings and, and in much later years in the form of flannel graph. <laughs> Sunday school flashback. But, but for the most part, the Bible has been a very oral book. It's a book that Christians have read aloud to one another, which is kind of hard for us to comprehend, especially when you start thinking about how many Bibles we have today. I mean, if you go online or you go to your local Christian bookstore or whatever, and, and you just look at the number of Bibles there are. I mean, the number of translations, the number of styles of Bible. I mean, you've got, you know, you've got the Adventure Bible. 
You got the, you got the boys' Bible. You got the babies' Bible. You got the young women's of faith Bible. You know, they've even got now a Cockney slang version of the Bible. Do you know that? I'm going to get that. I'm going to use it next weekend. We'll see. We'll see how that goes, right? Okay, you've got the archaeological study Bible. You've got the ultra slim. Oh, and you also have, get this, the the American Patriots version. Someone take a sword to my throat. Anyway, but then, of course, you go beyond just scriptures or or the Bible. No, water everywhere. It It is bottles of water everywhere. I mean, look, I'm thirsty, but I'm not that thirsty, okay? Anyway, baptism. <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> you're, like, you're like, are you serious? Because you might be. <laughs> so anyway, so we got the Bible not just in print. We've got the Bible on what? On DVD, CD, MP3 iPhone, right? You got the whole Bible on the iPhone now. I mean, look, we've come, we've come a long way since the 15th century, haven't we? We've come a long way. And, and, and in a way, it might seem like we're much better off today than those who live in the Middle Ages because, of course, the Bible is, is everywhere. But I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if this is actually something that causes us to take the Bible more seriously or do we end up taking it more for granted? I, I love the, the picture that's painted in uh, the book Divine Intervention by Tony Jones. He says this, quote, Imagine that you are a peasant in the Middle Ages. You see the Bible once a week when the priest carries it into worship high over his head to show his reverence for God's word. Think of how differently you would experience the word of God in that setting than you do having it sit often untouched on your bedside table. Well, speaking of Middle Ages, today you're going to meet a man who lived during the Middle Ages. A man by the name of Gigue du Chastel, also known as Gigo II. Okay, I'm going to point something out here. When did Gigue du Pastel, uh, Chastel, whatever his name, live? Oh, Middle Ages. This is medieval Roman Catholic monastic mysticism that you're going to hear here. This is not a way for you to engage and go deeper in scriptures at all. Or if that doesn't ring a bell, most of you probably would know him by uh, being the ninth prior of the Grand Chartreuse of Carthusians. <laughs> Does, did it click? I mean, you, you got it, right? Yeah, okay, now that, now that you say it that way, I got it, right? Okay, well, basically, just a little uh, history here. The Carthusians are, were this, and still are, a very strict order of monks. Okay, for example, they wake up like 11.45 at night and pray for three hours. Some of you are like, yeah, I do that all the time. Liar. Okay, so anyway, maybe you do, that's great. Okay, but anyway, so, so you have these, this very strict order of monks known as the Carthusians. Their headquarters are known as uh, the Grand Chartreuse, uh, Chartreuse, which is right outside of Grenoble, France. And the prior is like basically the leader of the Grand Chartreuse. Therefore, he's also the leader of all the uh, Carthusians around the world. And uh, Gigo was the ninth monk to lead the order, which means that he was the ninth prior of the Grand Chartreuse of Carthusians. Thank you. Good night. Oh, see, don't you feel like you've really reached some kind of historical depth today, right? Anyway, so Gigo. 
Gigo lived from about 1115 to 1198, and around 1150, he wrote what's known as the Ladder of Monastics, which was also known as the Ladder of the Four Rungs. And in this writing, what he does is he compares the way that monks pray and seek God to a story that some of you might be familiar with in the scriptures of a man named Jacob who climbed a ladder to God. Point this out. Uh, Gigo here is taking an allegorical interpretation of the story of the ladder that, that, or the staircase that, uh, that Jacob saw where angels were ascending and descending into heaven. It wasn't us that were ascending and, de- and descending into heaven. It was, it was the angels, and that was a particular place that, uh, that Jacob saw this, and God had him hear that and see that because uh, God had made him a promise that he was going to make him a great nation. Okay, read the text in Genesis. It applies to Jacob. Nowhere, nowhere in Scripture does it teach us that we can then, therefore, uh, ascend the ladder into heaven like the angels did by following particular steps. That is an allegorical, eisegetical mishandling and twisting of the Scriptures to do this. And, and who did this? A medieval Roman Catholic monk. Medieval monk. We continue. And he begins his book by by explaining how we sort of came to this revelation, okay? And he says this, quote, One day I was engaged in physical work with my hands, and I began to think about the spiritual tasks we humans have. While I was thinking, four spiritual steps came to mind. Reading, which is lexio. Meditation, meditatio. Prayer, oratio. And contemplation, contemplatio. And he says, this is the ladder of monastics by which they are lifted up from the earth into heaven. Really? So this is a ladder that monks then ascend into heaven. Where they can then experience God. Oh, yeah. Where is this found in the Bible? Oh, I re- sorry, this is not in the Bible. This wasn't discovered. This this ladder into heaven wasn't discovered until Gigo in the eleventh century. Eleventh century. Did I mention that this was from the eleventh century? And it was this writing, this work by Gigo that gave us a very beautiful and experiential way to uh, engage the scriptures in our lives today known as Lexio Divina. A beautiful way to experience the scriptures. Experience. Did you notice the emphasis on experience? You're supposed to have a spiritual experience by doing this. Does God anywhere promise that if you climb this ladder that you can have a, quote, spiritual experience? Nowhere in scripture is this taught. Would you say that with me? Lexio Divina, which is a Latin phrase that means divine reading, okay? And, and, and basically what Lexio Divina is, is, is a way of praying meditatively with the Bible so that the Word of God can really penetrate and reach into our hearts and our minds. Now, of course, this is not the only way to read the Bible. There's a lot of different ways you can approach the scriptures. Uh, but this is a very ancient way that, uh, that was used by early monastics. And, of course, it's a method that's been used. Used by who? Again, early monastics? 10th century is not early, by the way. We're right in the middle of the Middle Ages here. 
yeah, it's old by today's standards, but it ain't biblical, and it doesn't it doesn't go back to the apostles, nor to Christ or the prophets. This is, uh, sorry, this is a early comer. This is a newcomer by by biblical standards, and it should be tested against Scripture. Used by, I mean, countless numbers of, of Christ followers uh, uh, since that time. As- really, countless numbers of Christ followers, monks who are trying to earn their salvation in the monastery, monks who are trying to uh, basically uh, outperform, uh, basically do enough good works to save both themselves and have uh, basically have their good works thrown into the bank of merits so that it can be applied to other people in, in Roman Catholic theology. These are other Christ followers? You don't know what a Christ follower is if you think that a monk locked up in a cell trying to save himself through his good works is a Christ follower. He's not. He's not a Christian. He's a heretic. He's not saved because he's not trusting in Christ for his salvation. Sort of a really a way of letting go of our own agendas when we read the when we read the Bible. Because how many of you know we do that sometimes, don't we? We have agendas, right? I mean, if you just think about some of the things that have been done in the name of Christianity, some of the things that have been done in the name of God, right? I mean, if you really want to, you could take the Bible and make it say pretty much whatever you want it to say, right? But but lexio divina is a way for us to let go of our own agendas. So lexio divina, you can let go of your agenda and, you know, we're not going to read it you know, and twist it and whatever. This is just, this is pure raw experience. So that we can really embrace what God's trying to say to us through his, through his word. Now, lexio divina involves four very simple steps. And they're these right here. It involves reading the text. It involves reflecting on the text. It involves responding to what we sense God is saying to us through a portion of that text. What we sense God is saying to us? Sense? Notice the subjectivity. This takes you out of the objective meaning of God's word and basically turns the Bible into an object for you to have a subjective experience, a means to an end. We're no longer focusing on what the text actually says and means. We're using it to sense what God is trying to say to us in in a spiritual, transcendental kind of way. And then lastly, it involves resting in that text and resting in the love and in the presence of God. It's it's. It's a quite a different approach than how many of us approach the scriptures today. Um, it's kind of yeah, because we're supposed to be Protestants, not mo- Roman Catholic monks. Kind of like you know, I think the best thing I can example is kind of the difference between you know going through the drive-through at McDonald's and scarfing down a Big Mac, fries, and a Coke. So if you're reading the scriptures to understand it, that's like going to McDonald's and eating a Big Mac and a fries and Coke. It's junk food before you even are out of the parking lot. And then going, oh, I don't know why. I don't feel very good. Right? It's kind of the difference between going to the drive-thru McDonald's, scarfing your meal down, and going to maybe a five-star restaurant in, in, in Chicago, maybe like Charlie Trotter's or True or any other place maybe some of you would like to take me to, um, and, and, and experiencing like this eight- or nine-course dinner meal experience with, with the perfect wine pairings and beautiful presentation. 
Okay, so you read, opening up your Bible, reading it to understand it, that's junk food. Doing the Lectio Divina and, quote, experiencing God and, and sensing what he's trying to tell you through this monastic Roman Catholic practice is, is going to a five-star restaurant and having fine wine. Wow. You know, the kind of experience where, where you really take your time. You take your time looking at the presentation, or if you're like me, you take your phone out and you take photos. And you look at the presentation and you smell the aroma of the dish. And, and you don't just taste it, but you, you taste it and, you, and you, you think about the flavors. And you think about the textures that you're experiencing, and you're just savoring every moment of that experience. I got a question for you. Martin Luther, the guy who nailed the 95 theses to the door that kicked off, that sparked the whole Protestant Reformation, you know that he was a monk? He spent years in the monastery trying to save himself. He practiced this stuff. How come Martin Luther didn't have people doing these mysticism practices as part of Lutheranism? Why? Because he knew it contradicted Sola Scriptura. These ladders to heaven are pure mythology and spiritual fantasies. They're not real. They are distractions away from Christ. That's the idea behind Lexio Davina. It's, it's about taking your time and really trusting and allowing God to speak to you from the holy text. The reading part, it's kind of like taking that first bite. Uh, and, and, and the reflecting on the text is like that chewing of the food and, and really tasting it. The responding is like the, the savoring of it and, and really thinking about the, 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 the flavors and the tastes and the experience and the texture. And the resting is sort of like the end of that meal when you've eaten all that you can eat and you sort of just sit back and go, wow, that was good. It's a beautiful experience. Yet it's extremely countercultural. Because we're in a hurry, aren't we, right? And if you're anything like me, you, I mean, especially challenging if you are sort of an ADD, caffeine-addicted person who loves technology. Uh, by the way, no, it's not countercultural. The reason why Scott Hodge is preaching and teaching this is because their market data shows that this is exactly what the culture expects from church. So he's giving it to them. They expect to have, they want, expect and want spiritual experiences, so we're going to have to give it to them. This is not countercultural. This is absolutely kowtowing and selling out to the culture. It can be challenging. And yet that's part of the reason I think this is such a beautiful way to approach the scriptures because it is very countercultural and it does force you to take your time. You have to take your time. And the other thing is you have to do it at the right time. In fact, um, in ancient times... It was believed that dusk and dawn were the, were the most conducive times for contemplative prayer. In oh, our... So not only do you have to do this, you have to do it at the right time, dusk or dawn. 
you know, because that, that's the con- conducive time to doing contemplative prayer so that you can have these experiences. Where is this? Where does it say in the scriptures that you can have a greater chance of having an experience with God if you do it at du- if you do contemplative prayer at dusk or dawn? Nowhere. Time. I mean, the best thing that we can do in our time is to find that moment of the day that works best for us to sort of experiment. I'll tell you, for me, I've discovered that the best part of uh, my uh, best time of my day to get quiet and to really meditate on the scriptures is early in the morning. Now, it's taken me a long time to really admit that and to get honest about it because I'm a night owl. I hate going to sleep at night. I feel like I'm going to miss out on something. You know what I'm saying? Am I the only one? And so I hate going to bed. And so what I've had to do is I've had to adjust when I, when I go to sleep at night. I can't go to bed at 2 a.m. if I'm going to get up at 5. It just doesn't work, right? So here's what I thought I would do, okay? Just to give you sort of an idea of how uh, Lexio Davina works is I thought I would sort of walk you through how I've done this. So sort of my experience with this, and in particular, um, I'll share with you from a morning this past week that I took some time to really get quiet. It was early in the morning, uh, probably about 6.30. I was in my office here at the church. I was on my couch, and here's the thing. Like, you got to find that middle spot between comfortable and uncomfortable, because if you're too comfortable, you will sleep. If you're too uncomfortable, that's all you'll think about is how uncomfortable you are. So you have to sort of find that. So I'm, I'm sort of in that, in that place of, okay, I'm not too comfortable. I'm not too uncomfortable. And so I sat down and I just took a deep breath. <sighs> well, that feels good. You guys look like you need to do that. Go ahead. Let's all take a deep breath. Ready? <sighs> See, that's oxygen. That is really good for you. Okay. So I took a deep breath, had my Starbucks coffee sitting on the table, which was my fuel for getting through this time. And And I basically just took a moment and I said, God, would you speak to my heart? And so I began with the first step of reading. And I'll show you the passage that I I used that day was Romans chapter 15, verse 13. Uh, It says, in fact, let's read it together, can we? Let's read it all together, Romans 15. Now notice, uh, this is just a verse. You know, Romans, the satin be the one that he bit into that day. Verse 13, let's read. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what I did was this first step of reading is I just began to read the scripture over and over and over again, probably somewhere between 10, 11, maybe 12 times. And then just as I was getting tired... Okay, notice, read it over and 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 over again. Mantra meditation. Tired of reading it. I read it a few more times. And, and as I did that, I started looking for a couple of words. What, what words seem to be popping out at me? What- so where in the scriptures does it say that if you read the scriptures this way, that words will pop out at you? Who developed this again? Roman Catholic medieval monks. What phrase in this passage seems to be sort of catching my attention? Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, no context there, by the way, for that verse. He's, he just, that's the verse he keyed in on. Let me read it in context. Romans chapter 15. 
We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. (laughs) Did you see that? Here in Romans chapter 15, if you read it in context, it talks about how the scriptures were written for our encouragement, uh, that we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's uh, truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, in order that, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. Who is Romans chapter 15 about? It's about Christ. And it says that the Gentiles are going to praise God because of his mercy. How do we know about, how did the Gentiles learn about God's mercy? Because they heard the good news of Christ and him crucified for our sins. The gospel, which is so boldly proclaimed throughout the entire book of Romans. Then finally we get to Romans 13. And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. Then I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around Irochinium to have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ and thus make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, But at least uh, lest I build on somebody else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never uh, heard will understand. So when you read Romans uh, chapter 15, verse 13 in context, it's all about our hope in Jesus Christ and Paul's desire to preach the gospel. It's all about Christ and him crucified for our sins and proclaiming that good news to people who've never heard it. That's what Romans 15, 13 is about. Knowing that now, listen to what supposedly the Spirit is going to talk to him about what's, you know, and communicate to him what's really behind this text. I just give you an idea of how my, how my mind works. The first phrase that stuck out in my mind was, now the God. And I said, no way, that, there's no way. That's the first three words of the scripture. That's too easy. <laughs> so I kept reading it. Now the God of hope fill you with, with all joy and peace and believing that ye may abound in hope. Boom, that was it. Oh, that phrase, abound in hope. Abound in hope. It was like that phrase just reached out, slapped me. Abound 
in hope. And so I wrote that phrase down, abound in hope. I think that's it, abound in hope. Hope, And then I moved into the second part of, uh, of, uh, of uh, Lexio Divina, which is reflecting. And I begin to reflect on that phrase. Um, and I took that phrase, abound in hope. And, and, and what I did was I just sort of pictured it uh, on, in the scripture and all the other words around it just sort of falling down, you know. And, and I just imagine that word sitting there and, and sort of like 3D because that's just my mind. I just imagined, I just imagined, I just imagined like, what is this? Uh, he's now basically engaging in a pure subjective exercise here. Not really what does this text mean in context. He's just found the words abound in hope, and now he's imagining things happening to these words because he's having a spiritual experience. And works this way sometimes. And, and I picture this phrase, uh, abound in hope, sort of like spinning around. And I'm looking at it going, ooh, abound in hope, ooh. Ooh, abound in hope. He's imagining those words spinning around. I've never had such an experience while reading the Bible. But then again, I don't read the Bible to, quote, have an experience. Abound in hope. Hmm, abound in hope. What, what does that mean? And I begin to think about that phrase, abound in hope. Now notice, in answering the question, what does this mean, he's not going to go to... The Greek. He's not going to look deep into what it is the words mean in context. No, we're still in subjective la-la land here. And, and I started writing down words or phrases that that word made me think of. For example, I started writing down words like... So subjective free, wo free word association going on here. Children. I, I wrote down the word, uh, the phrase filled with hope. I wrote down the phrase Christmas Eve. I wrote down the phrase overflowing. And then as I sat there, this is crazy. Okay, some of you are going to run out of here. Um, I, I started going abound in hope, abound in hope. And I started saying it every way I could think of like abound in hope. I went black preacher for a second, abound in hope. Oh, okay. And, and, then, I, and then I was like abound in hope, hope. Abound in hope. And I'm listening to my lips like pop. Okay, this is going to sound weird. But uh, I don't know a single hermeneutics professor in any of the, any seminary that, <laughs> that is actually worth its salt that teach you to uh, interpret the Bible using this method. Abound in hope. Imagine the word spinning around. Abound in hope. And I started picturing like this canister that's filled with hope and it's getting ready to pop open. Okay, abounding in, abound in hope. And so I wrote down the word, I wrote down the word bursting. I wrote down the word explosion. I wrote down the word visible. And I kept picturing like this canister filled so much. Like if you just like barely squeeze it, pop, it'll pop all over the place. And so I wrote down the word wrapped up tightly. The phrase wrapped up tightly. Man, this is just crazy. Where are we? I know. It looks like the foothills. The foothills of what? The foothills of the headlands.
That's what that sounds like. I mean, we are literally, I mean, seriously, I think the Lectio Divina would probably be enhanced with a little LSD, don't you? And, and then as I continued to reflect, I started thinking about what God's hope looks like in people's life. Not mine, because my temptation there was to say, okay, God, what are you trying to say to me right now? What does this mean for Scott Hodge? But I waited. I said, okay, what does hope mean for people? What, what does it mean... For this world, now the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace and believing that you may abound in hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. And now notice something here. Because he randomly picked this passage and decided to Lectio Divina it, he's completely missed the context that all of Romans 15, in fact, the entire Bible, but Romans 15 in particular is all about Christ and the gospel. So we're hearing about hope here because he's off on some drug trip or mystical, magical mystery tour. And he's missing the gospel. He's missing Jesus Christ. And, and as, I, as I sat there and thought about this, I wrote this phrase down. I wrote, the God of hope fills me so that I can abound in hope. I, I also wrote down this phrase, the very nature of God is hope. Okay, listen, I wrote this. God does not abound in hope. He is hope. Okay, God is not filled with hope. He is the very essence of hope. Oh, this sounds so profound. Did he come up with that all by himself? Yeah. So when he fills me, I partake of hope. And then I begin thinking about what happens when a person partakes of hope. And I wrote down, because of hope, a person can release grief. Because of hope... A person can release fear. Oh, this is so profound. But where's Christ in the gospel in all of this? Oh, yeah, MIA. A person can, because of hope, release the need for immediate gratification. Because of hope, a person can, can release the need for immediate justice to occur. Because of hope... A person doesn't have to feel sorry for themselves. And I wrote down this phrase as well. Nothing can bring me down into a pit of despair when there is hope. Because hope, and I wrote these words, hope tells us that the future is better. Hope tells us that what's... This is a Christless hope. Where's Jesus in the gospel? It's so boldly proclaimed in Romans 15, but it's so completely missing from this little Lectio Divina exercise. It's broken, 
will be fixed. Hope tells us that what's hurt will be healed. That what's gone wrong will one day go right. And what's been missed will be compensated for. And so after reflecting on this phrase for a few minutes of just hope, what does hope mean for people? What is hope all about? I moved into the third step of Lexio Davina, which is responding. And, and the responding part of that is just really saying, okay, Lord, what do you want to say to me through this passage? What do you want to say to me through what you've given me today? What are you trying to say to me? What, where in my life do I need to embrace hope? So then what I did was I moved it from what does hope mean for people to what does hope mean for Scott Hodge right now in my life? And I begin to think about my life. You know, I begin to think about areas of my life that I really need hope in. You know, I started thinking about my role as a father. And I started picturing me with my children, and I, and I started thinking about how much I really need God to fill me with this hope that I can really be the dad and the father that he's called me to be. Because there's times I'm not totally sure that I can be. I started thinking about my, my role as a husband and what that means and what hope looks like for someone in the role of a husband and what it looks like for Scott in his life. I started thinking about God's calling on my life and how sometimes I think there's insecurities and there's, there, there's areas of my life that I lack confidence in when it comes to really trusting and believing God that he's going to really be able to use me to do something great in this world, in this life that's going to bring glory to him. I started thinking about grief in my life. I started thinking about the grief I have over my father. Who... <clears throat> this is just, I mean, he's, we're plumbing the depths of his psyche, but we're not plumbing the depths of what God's word means and what it says. This is just therapy. He passed away a few years ago. And I started thinking about how much I need hope in these areas. And, and, and I said, Lord, what do you want to do what do you want me to do with what you've given me today? And as I, as I sat there quietly, what I really felt like God was saying to me, and I'm, I'm really letting you in right now, but I, I said, I, I just wrote down this, that, Scott, you must release fears and insecurities. Okay, so the big message, God directly spoke to him and said he has to release fears and insecurities, all from his meditation, uh, mystical meditation on that particular passage. Really? Is is Romans chapter 15 anything about releasing fears and insecurities? No, it's not. His eyes are completely off of Christ and the cross and the gospel, which are so boldly and loudly proclaimed and preached there in Romans 15. And he's got his self, he's basically turned completely inward he might as well be looking at a mirror when he's opening up his Bible at this point because he's not seeing what the Bible says. He's just seeing himself and then claiming that God is the one doing this. God was telling you, Scott, the words abound in hope for you. And that little mystical meditation, you need to let go of fears and insecurities. Isn't that just precious? And, and you must embrace confidence. And this is going back now to that. Remember, that really, God, so God was, so Romans fifteen thirteen is all about embracing confidence too. This is crazy. This uh, this is absolute 
crazy. just think these Beatles uh, drug-induced songs are completely appropriate here. This is not biblical Christianity. This is Eastern mysticism and bizarreness. For the crazy popping sound I was making, okay, this goes back to that. I, I must embrace confidence so that I can abound in hope to the degree that other people around me see that this is a person who has hope in God. So that when people see how I father my children, that they would say, okay, that, that man may not be perfect and he may not have, have it all figured out, but that, that's a man of hope. He's got hope in his heart. Or, or when they see how I lead in my life and I'm fulfilling God's call in my life, they can say, well, well he, he, he may not be doing it just right and, he, and there might be a lot of better ways to do it, but that, he really has hope that God can do something with him. He has hope that God can do something with him. What about the hope of the resurrection from the dead? Or how about the hope of eternal life won by Christ and his crucifixion for our sins and his shed blood on the cross? Mysteriously missing. The way that I grieve and the way that, that I think about how much my heart misses my father and his role in my life. That people could look at me and say, you know, there's grief and there's sadness, but man, he has hope that he's going to see him again one day and, and that whatever's been missed will one day be made up for, will one day be compensated. That guy, he has hope. He believes this. And so I wrote this phrase down. I wrote, I embrace and so abound in hope that it is displayed to those around me. That I'm so filled with hope that people can't help but to see. Not, not how it's all about him. So that people will say there's hope because they see him. No, Scott, you need to proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins and call people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. They don't need to see you. They need to see Jesus. Who cares about your little psychological little drama going on here? How great Scott is, but how great God is because there is hope in this great God of ours. Which great God exactly is he referring to? I'm a little confused. And don't sit there and go, well, he, he's a Christian pastor. Of course, he's referring to the God of the Bible. No, I'm not so sure anymore. I can't assume that at this point. And then finally, after a couple more minutes of just, just listening, I moved on to that next step of just resting. 
and just getting quiet. This is a hard part for me. I don't do well at resting. And I don't do well at just sitting and being quiet. You know, my mind begins to wander, but, but I made myself do it. And, I, and it was like, it's like having that moment after that beautiful meal where, you, where you're full and you're satisfied. And, and, uh, maybe, well, he's full, all right, but he's full of himself. Maybe a little too satisfied. And, and you're sitting there and, and you're just going, okay, don't anyone talk to me. It's like Thanksgiving dinner. You've just eaten that great meal and your uncle won't stop talking. And you're just going, please, please. It's being still and resting. So I took, I took a few deep breaths, relaxed myself, and just got quiet. And then after a few minutes, I stood up, and I, I think I, I confessed the Apostles' Creed or something, and I, I then moved on with my morning. But, man, what a beautiful moment that was for me. And, and, and I'll tell you, it's interesting because a couple of our other staff did this as well, not, not in the same room at the same time, but um, the same passage. And it was interesting as we talked about it, it was interesting how their experiences of this passage, same exact word. Their experiences of this passage. The Bible, the Bible verses are not something that you quote experience. They're not for that. Words. But, but, but their experiences and that word and that phrase that really jumped out to them and the way God spoke to them was very, very unique and very different from what my experience was like. Pure subjectivity. So now we don't even know, we can't even say objectively God's word means this in this text. You can have an experience that's different than somebody else's experience, that's different from my experience, from that other person's experience. God's, God's words now has so many different meanings, it's as individual as the individual, and so unique as the unique individual who's experiencing it. This is no way to study God's word or meditate on it at all. And it reminded me, you know what? That's exactly what Lexio Davina is. That's exactly what it's about. Approaching God with this, with, with this attitude and, and expectation that he is going to speak to my heart in a unique and personal way. So it's not coming to the scriptures and saying, I need to understand the mind of God and what he's revealed in his word. It's coming with an attitude that he's going to speak to me in a unique subjective way that's so unique nobody else is going to even have the same experience because i can i can experience god so uniquely so individually that god's word basically is just a tool for these unique experiences this is not christianity that's exactly what he did and and some of you you aren't sure that you've ever heard god's voice in your life and you long to. And, and, and if there's anything in the Christian walk, I mean, it might, it's, maybe for you it was easy to walk into the water to get baptized. Or maybe it was easy to go out and buy a Bible. Or maybe it was easy to, to, to begin uh, engaging in certain spiritual practices. But when it came to hearing from God, you find that to be extremely challenging and difficult in your life. So you want to, you basically you come with the expectation you personally are going to hear God's voice. That's okay if this seems difficult. Just the Lectio Divina, boom. You just do these four things and you're going to climb right into heaven and you are going to personally hear God's voice. Where is this taught in Scripture? Nowhere. And, and can I just say that I totally understand. 
which is why not only did I want to share my experience with you, but, but I wanted to give you an opportunity today to take some time before we leave to actually experience a taste of Lexio Davina. Okay, he's now going to walk the people in his congregation through Lectio Divina. Listen carefully to his advice to somebody who isn't even a Christian. Can they do Lectio Divina and experience God? Let's find out. For yourselves. Unfortunately, we, we don't have 45 minutes. We have just a short time to do this, but we do have a few minutes. And so what I want to do is I, I want to walk through these four steps with you. And um, at the end of each row is a stack of paper, a stack of sheets. If you're sitting at the end, would you just see if there's one under your seat? Uh, grab that, and there's a paper clip. Just pass the sheets down the aisle. And uh, there's pens on the seat in front of you. Uh, if you do need a pen, if you can't find one, just raise your hand. We've got welcome teams. They're ready to give you a pen. But I want us all to do this. I know there might be some of you here. You're going, okay, uh, hold on a second. What are we doing here? Um, or maybe, maybe you've not even yet entered into a relationship with Christ in your life. Okay, can you experience God if you do the Lectio Divina and you haven't, you, you're not even a Christian? Um, and that's okay. Let me just say that's okay. Just go with the flow of this experience. This is the third time this weekend we've done this. Apparently, you can experience God's presence apart from Jesus Christ, his cross, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins. Just practice the Lectio Divina, and you can experience God. No, even, no need to even be a repentant sinner or trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You can do this and experience God. This shows that this is a complete crock. It's a complete counterfeit. This is not the biblical Holy Spirit that they're encountering. It's something completely different. And in every service, it's been amazing to me to watch how God has spoken very personally to so many people. Um, and so if you need a pen, would you just lift your hand? If you need a pen, raise your hand real high. We'll get you one. Or if you need a sheet, if we ran up. By the way, one of the things I refer to this practice as, think of these uh, monastic mysticism practices as postmodern Pentecostalism. It's uh, the ability to experience God without that thorny thing of having to speak in tongues. And out of paper... So what's going to happen is, in a moment, don't look at your sheets, please. Cheaters. <laughs> Guys. You're like, oh, I got it. I know what God's saying to me. No, you don't. No, you don't. Mm -mm. That is so not fair if that's the case, okay? Because it took me like 45 minutes. No, okay. Here's what we're going to do. In a moment, in a moment we're going to read a passage of Scripture. And just again, imagine that fine meal that you've sat down and you're going to take a bite. And then we're going to reflect on it. And you're going to look for that phrase. You're going to look for that word that really sticks out to you. And, and then after a few minutes, we're going to respond. And we're going to just simply ask God, okay, Lord, what do you want to say to me through this word? What do you want to speak to my heart? And then before we go, we're going to, we're going to do that, the challenging part of it all. We're just going to be totally quiet and just sit and, and let God pour out his love and his presence on us before we leave. Now, let me just say a couple things. If you have a, a child or an infant, a baby in here who has a tendency to want to sing the national anthem during the church service, this would, uh, if they start to do that, would you just take them out in the lobby and you can participate from there? Um, if, uh, if you need to use the restroom, please do.
I mean, not, not in here. I mean, go out, go, go out and use the, okay. You're like, wait, is that part of the deal? That's weird. Uh, no, you can, please feel free to go out, uh, in the lobby, use the restroom. But when you come back in, would you do me a favor? Would you sit in the back of the room? Because what we want to do is we want to keep this room just very still, very quiet, uh, for the next several minutes. And, and, uh, also don't talk to the person next to you. This is for you. This is a way for you individually to connect and to hear from God. And here's what I think. I just think that when we approach God with hunger, when we approach God and we, here's what I think, here's what I think. I think that if we approach God with hunger, then he's going to speak to us directly where's that taught in the bible that's a fine opinion but it's not backed up with any scripture we desire to hear from him i really believe he loves nothing more than to speak to us and so well that's great that you believe that scott but where's that in the bible again it isn't what i want you to do is i just want to take a moment and um let's first of all just take a really deep breath can we do that let's take a deep breath <sighs> feels good And let's pray, and I want you to pray just in your own way between you and your creator, and I just want you to ask him to speak to you right now. Can we do that? Just close our eyes, bow our heads, let's pray. Just in your own way, just ask God to speak to you. Nothing like good old self-deception. God, you've told us in the scriptures that if we ask, we shall receive. If we knock the door will be opened. Uh, That verse does not mean that if you practice Lectio Divina, that God is beholden to speak to you directly. And if we seek, we shall find. And so would you speak to us now? Amen. We're going to begin by reading this text, Psalm chapter 13. We'll put it on the screen here. And what I want you to do as we read it, I want you to listen to the text, maybe even more than actually read it. I want you to listen to it. And we're going to read it a couple of times, three or four times. And uh, who's my readers? Okay, awesome. Becca, would you start and read Psalm 13? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes, I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Now, we're going to read that again, but I'd like us all to read this together in unison. Okay, let's read. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Now we're going to read this again now as as we read it a third time now. I want you to not think real deeply about this. I don't want you to think about your life right now necessarily. Um, I want you just to listen to the words. And as it's read, 
I want you to uh, just begin looking for that phrase or that word that just seems... Notice he wants you to turn your mind off and just kind of wait for that word or phrase to pop out. Turn your mind off. Go back and listen to my interview with Christine Pack on Friday, folks. Seems to kind of pop out at you. And Dave, I'll have you read this one. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my fools will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Let's just take about a minute and let's just sit in silence. And you might want to look at these words um, or, or you may just want to close your eyes and just think about what you've heard. Let's just take about a minute. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to read it again just silently to yourself. But as you read it, um, I want you to imagine that you can hear your voice or someone else's voice or a crowd, whatever you want it to be. But just imagine hearing those words of that passage again. And as you, as you read it and uh, as you read it silently, pay attention to the words, but, but begin to look for that word or that phrase. And what I'd like you to do, because now we're moving into the reflecting time, um, and I want you just to write down on the sheet that word or that phrase that seems to be sticking out to you. So just take your time, read through it again, and whatever that word or that phrase, and, and this is where sometimes we second-guess it and we wonder, you know, is this me or is this God? Well, if it is you and not God, you're not going to lose anything because this is the Scriptures and it will only help you. So um, whatever that phrase is, read it again to yourself and go ahead and write that down on your sheet uh, as that word seems to stand out to you. So we're supposed to use our imaginations at this point. It reminds me of Disneyland. Welcome to Fantasmic. Tonight, our friend and host, Mickey Mouse, uses his vivid imagination to create magical imagery for all to enjoy. We now invite you to join Mickey and experience Fantasmic, a journey beyond your wildest imagination. Imagination. Use your imagination. Use your imagination. 
Come on, use your imagination. You know, Phantasmic's far more interesting than this Lectio Divina. <clears throat> Those poor monks, they didn't have Mickey Mouse going for them. If you find that your mind is wandering, Lectio Divina is really boring. Wandering and you're thinking about lunch or thinking about other things, just just bring your focus back. That's okay. Just go ahead and bring your focus back, though. I'm not getting anything. My imagination must be stuck. I'm going to read this passage again, and I want you to, uh, if you haven't written that phrase down, go ahead and write it uh, at this time. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him, but my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Now, I want you to look at that word or that phrase that you've written down, and I want you just to imagine all the words and letters around it. Uh, just kind of falling down and just seeing that phrase standing alone. Uh, just imagine maybe a spotlight sort of shining on every side of it. And I want you. Oh, man, here we go with this imagination stuff again. I want you to just begin to chew on that phrase, that word. I want you to, to sort of flip it over and back again and just say the word in your mind uh, a few times. Just say it over and over again and just focus on that phrase, whatever it might be. And it might be a phrase that makes no sense to you at all and you have no idea why it has stuck out to you. That's okay. Just go with it and uh, just picture that phrase for just a moment. Don't talk to God about it yet. Don't, don't think about what the implications of that word is. Just think about the word itself. And I want you to begin paying attention to the feeling or the emotion that that phrase or that word uh, sort of provokes in you. And as you do that, if there's another word that you think maybe that was the other word was it, go with that other word. That's fine. But I want you to begin rolling that word and that emotion around in your mind. Uh, engage with the emotion. Say it over and over again. And go ahead and begin writing down what those feelings or those emotions are. Um, think about that word. What words does that phrase or does that word bring into your mind? 
Uh, just begin to think about that. What does this word make me think about? And go ahead and write that down next to the word on your sheet. I think I'll just color my nails or something. Maybe my Lectio Divina antenna is broken. Just, it's, I'm not receiving nothing. Can I get my tithe money back? How long is this going to take? Think about what feelings, emotions, not necessarily about yourself, but just in general. What does this word or this phrase cause you to feel or think about? Is it time's up yet? Now we're going to move to the next part, which on your sheet is responding. And this is Man, I never thought he would get to that next part. Dying in agony here as we do the Lectio Divina. This is where you sort of have to trust now that God really has caused this part of this passage, this word or this phrase. You trust that he's given this to you. Oh, now you, you just got to trust that he's given this to you, <clears throat> by the way without any clear word from God that he's going to do any such thing. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say that you can trust God will do this if you do that. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this. Actually, I think I'll have Becca read this passage again. And as she reads it, when she gets to that phrase or that word that you've written down, I want you to... uh, Just kind of say a prayer to God when you hear that phrase or that word and just ask him, Lord, what do you want me to do with what you've given me today? So Becca will read it. When you hear your word or your phrase, just ask God, Lord, what do you want me to do with what you've given me today? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Just ask him, Lord, what do you want me to do with what you've given me today? Just go ahead and write that down. Hopefully somebody's writing down, run. Find a new church. Leave here quick. Just maybe think about some of the issues that are in your mind right now. Maybe some 
what God might be saying to you about perhaps a struggle that you're facing, maybe an attitude of some sort. Perhaps it's about a relationship. Just go ahead and write down, just go with the first thing you're sensing, what you feel like God might be saying to you. What if my sensor is broken? God begins to speak to you about your life. But really, where does it say that in the scripture? Oh, it doesn't. The way you think, the way you behave, the way that you trust, any of those kinds of things. You feel a little foolish right now. You're just not sure if what you've written down is really from God or not. As long as what you've written isn't going contrary to the Scriptures. I guarantee you this whole exercise is contrary to the Scriptures. Therefore, you ain't hearing from God. This is something God may very well have for you. And so I I would suggest just write, go with it, embrace it. Look at this waste of time when you could be actually reading the scriptures and understanding what it says. You're sitting here pondering, going, did I hear from God? Was that God that was talking to me? I'm not sure. What was the word I got again? Cheeseburger. Right. Yeah, that was God. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe he was saying, French fries. Yeah, that's what he was saying. French fries. Take about another minute. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will you leave me in this awful sermon? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Now we're going to move into the last step of Lexio Divina, which is resting. And, and this, this is the challenging part because it involves just sitting quietly 
and you probably feel like you've been doing this for about an hour now, but it's only been... No, more like a day. It's been a few minutes. But what I want you to do is during this time, I just want you to try to move beyond words and images and... Move beyond words and images. Okay. Just into a place of silence, even emptiness, just before God, and, and just let him now... Huh? Move into a place of emptiness before God. What does that even mean? Can somebody please explain that sentence to me? Now just pour his love and his mercy and his grace, his presence. That was interesting. That wasn't me. That was their technical issue. I'm going to go back to playing Jeopardy here. Hang on. Uh, Psalm chapter 13. Let's, let's lift our voices and say these words together. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. My enemies will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Now, these last two verses, let's say these with real trust and faith in our hearts. Let's read verse 5. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Let's read those two verses again. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Amen. Well, you know, here's my hope, guys, is that what's happened here today, I hope that many of you are walking out of here saying, wow, I think that I heard from God. Oh, man. Notice he didn't even preach the text. He just had us imagine words that somehow and trust that God was somehow speaking to us. And and the, those some words were falling and others were spinning. And what on earth? This was a sermon. I'm just curious how many of you would say, Scott, I think I, think I definitely am walking away with something that God said to me. I'm just curious. Would you raise your hand? How many of you say? Yeah, I'm raising my hand. I, I know that for a fact that God is warning me from his word that you're a false teacher and that people need to run, flee from this. Look at that. A lot of you, many of you, most of you in this room. Wow. Um, I'm just curious. Would, would a couple of you just holler out what was that word or that phrase of that passage? Heretic. Her- heretic. That stuck out to you? Who, False doctrine. Who would do that? Just Roman Catholic fantasy. Trust in your unfailing love. I can't hear. Huh? But is that what you said? But that's good, man. You, you got to share that with me later. Uh, what? What else? Hey, every word is important. What, what else? Say it real loud. Counterfeit. False Holy Spirit. Sham. You've lied. The King and the Duke. Light to my eyes. One more. Yes. He has been good. Deception. Wow. Deception. That's awesome. 
Yeah. It's just amazing how God can take one passage and distribute it out in so many beautiful ways for each of us to walk away with something. And, and you know, here's the thing. Maybe you are walking out of here maybe feeling a little... Yeah, after going through this exercise, nobody's going to be able to read the Bible and understand anything that it says. This is just pure subjectivity. Discouraged or, man, I just don't know if I really heard from God or whatever. But you know what? Here's my hope is that if anything, that your hunger for God has intensified um, and, and that you leave here today feeling like, uh, that maybe, and maybe this is actually sort of a catalyst for you uh, to start taking more time throughout your week, throughout your day, to just get quiet and to just hear from God. Yeah, rather than read your Bible, just get quiet and use a verse and twist it and you supposedly hear from God. Unbelievable. Now, now, what we're going to do this week, we want to help you to continue to experience this uh, Lexio Divina. And the way we're going to do that is each day on our Facebook page, we're going to post a uh, scripture and give you an opportunity to engage. Now, now, we know that to ask everyone to do this every day of the week, there's no way we're all going to do that. We just can't. Um, if you can, great. But what if you were to take just two days this week? Um, when you could find some time either in the morning or the evening or lunch break or whenever it might be and just take this sheet that you've been given today and, um, and what if you were to just take that time even just twice this week and say, God, would you speak to my heart in, in this beautiful and, and unique way? Um, and then what we'd love... Yet nowhere in the scripture does it say that God will speak to your heart in a unique way when you do the Lectio Divina. It was made up by Roman Catholic monks who were trying to earn their way to heaven love you to do is is to sign back on into facebook and share all right so that's the sermon folks what'd you think i think you know what my opinion is this doesn't square with god's word at all the whole practice is complete subject subjectivity and you may actually be tapping into the satanic realm you may not you may not even be experiencing the holy spirit who cares if you have a bible in hand it's not like it's a talisman that wards off the devil but this is not taught by God, it was not taught by Jesus, nor practiced by the apostles. This is something that was made up by Roman Catholic monks who were trying to earn their way to heaven. And this is the false spirituality that is taking over as all the rage in seeker-driven and emergent churches. And it won't put you in touch with Jesus Christ. In fact, it distracts you away from him by having you look inside rather than outside of you to the cross. And rather than reading God's word and understanding it, you're using it as some kind of a, a basically a, a channeling te- a object to get you in touch with the spiritual realm where you're supposed to sense what God is saying to you. Stop that nonsense and start reading the Bible. That's how you know what God is saying to you. He's given us his word. And he never intended it to be monkeyed around with like this. Only Satan would take you in a direction where you don't understand and comprehend and go deeper in God's word. And where you would fool yourself based on your subjectivity to think you're connecting with God when you're not. This is not biblical Christianity. This is not Christian spirituality. This is something completely different. Well, we're coming to the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. If you haven't done so already, now's a good time to join the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. In the month of January, if you join our crew, your monthly dues will be tripled by a, basically a significant anonymous donor. 
who wants to incentivize you to join our crew so that we can meet our financial goals and continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. The way you join is by visiting fightingforthefaith.com and click on the Join Our Crew button. Of course, if you'd like to donate above and beyond, you can click on the Donate button or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? We'd love to get your feedback. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. Amen. Amen.